Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this show, we aim to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines within the tactical performance space to help you improve performance at the individual and organizational level. Now, on this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Abel. Mark is an Associate Professor and Director of the First Responder Research Laboratory in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Promotion at the University of Kentucky. Mark conducts research to improve the safety, health, and occupational readiness of firefighters and law enforcement officers. As part of this, he's authored more than 50 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters on tactical topics. In addition to his research, he also teaches undergraduate courses in strength conditioning and graduate courses in high-performance coaching and tactical strength conditioning. He is recipient of the National Strength Conditioning Association's Tactical Strength Conditioning Practitioner of the Year Award and Senior Investigator Grant. He was one of the serving inaugural members of the NSA's Tactical Strength Conditioning Facilitator Certification Exam, Certification Exam Development Committee, and the TSAC Special Interest Group. Still serves as a contributor and reviewer for the TSAC report for the last seven years. He also owns Tactical Fitness Institute Limited, which develops legally defensible physical ability standards for fire departments and law enforcement agencies. Now, in this episode, me and Mark chat about his journey from firefighter to coach to academic, the perceived versus measured aerobic fitness levels and fireground performance of firefighters, and the influence of age on firefighter occupational performance. Good morning, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. Morning, John. Thanks for having me. No problem, Mark. This is just Thank a, you for... a little discussion among, amongst friends here, right? Definitely, man. Definitely. I mean, been looking forward to chatting to you a bit more in depth, dude. And, you know, I've got to say a special shout out as well to John Hoffman for putting us in touch with each other as well. You know, the guy is well connected and the man is a bit of the OG. I love John. So thank you, John. Appreciate man. All right. So obviously, Mark, me and you have had the chance just to chat a little bit off air, get to know each other and some of the work you're involved in. And for anyone who hasn't come across you and the work you're currently doing, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you start out your career and where you're currently at? Yeah, so um, I guess a little bit of background about me, you know, uh, when I came out of high school, I, I was actually a firefighter, went through my local academy in, in a small town in, in southeastern Wisconsin and really gave me kind of a firsthand experience of the fire service. Um, and uh, I did it for a few years. At the same time, I was, I was going to college, getting my associate's degree and stumbled onto this anatomy and physiology stuff that really kind of piqued my, my interest. And um, kind of found out about the exercise science um, degrees, you know, which in the early to mid '90s weren't what they are today, mm-hmm. um, certainly. And so, kind of went down that road, thinking I was going to be a personal trainer, and I did some of that a little bit along the way. And thought, well, at that point, uh, you know what? I, I want to work with real motivated individuals. I want to be a strength and conditioning coach. Well, as it turns out, they're not all super motivated, even at some of the the most elite levels, right? Um, but, you know, that, that kind of took me down a road in exercise science to get my master's degree. And there were some influential people um, that I came across along the way and that got me um, engaged in research in strength and conditioning. And, you know, I really kind of found my, my passion there and, and got my footing. And um, after that, it, it, it kind of led to, um, well, you know, I want to be a teacher and I want to be able to do research. And so I went on for my PhD. And, but it wasn't until um, I was at the University of Kentucky about 15, 16 years ago that I got a call to get involved with um, a large research study to write a, a large FEMA grant, which unfortunately was not funded at the time. 
but it opened the door mm -hmm. to conducting research and to collecting pilot data for future grant submissions and, and so forth. But it just truly opened the door to tactical strength and conditioning research that I've been doing the last 15, 16 years. And God, it's, it's brought me full circle to my roots as a firefighter, you know, coming out of high school, although it's been a lifetime ago, it seems like now, um, it, it has, it's come full circle and it's brought these passions of mine in terms of the fire service, strength and conditioning and exercise physiology and kind of put the, all those things in place. It's not something I planned to do from the beginning. It's just these career paths. We probably all go down and doors open and doors close. And, um, you know, you kind of hold on for the ride. That's uh, that's an awesome career path, dude. Obviously, going from working from the field as a firefighter to you know more of the applied science side of things within coaching and personal training, and I, I was just the same as you, dude. When I jumped into being a strength coach, I believed you know every athlete was going to be motivated to train every single day. I always laugh. I think back to my undergraduate. One of our courses was on sports psychology and motivational theory. And I just remember sitting in the class going, well, this is nonsense because athletes are going to want to train every single day. Just discount completely the fact that human beings as well. It's just like, okay. Yeah, they're humans. And, and um, you know, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, you can, can I go off the rails a little bit here on, on this stuff? Or do you want to kind of keep me uh, no, rain mate, okay? Go for it, dude. <laughs> I don't want to take over. We can't call this the, you know, the Mark Abel podcast, but... Um, <laughs> No, I mean, that, you know, what that topic is so fascinating to me because as an exercise physiologist, you know, we're all concerned about the neck down stuff, mm -hmm. right? How do we adapt physiologically, biologically to different stimuli? What's the optimal training program to, to enhance performance and decrease risk of injury? And yeah, all of that is great, but you hit the nail on the head, you know, is the, the real question becomes, you got to get people to do something. If you can't get the masses to do at least something, you're not gonna move the needle on any of these safety or readiness outcomes. And so, you know, this is, you know, this is an issue in academia, in my opinion, and a lot of exercise science programs, at least that I've, that I've seen, we don't spend enough time on the psychological elements of behavior modification. How do we get people to do something, whether it's smoking cessation, dietary changes or interventions and stuff, but how do we change those behaviors? And physical activity is, is one of those. And so as much as I love to be on the programming side of it and, and that research side, you know, from a practical perspective, compliance and, and, and changing behaviors within a fire department, law enforcement, you know, agency, et cetera, that's critical. I mean, to be honest, that's probably 90% of it. And the 10% of it is, the, you know, this little stuff that I like to do, but, um, yeah, so you know we got a lot of work to do, and but but you know psychologists, health uh, health promotion folks, that those people are critical in in this this big game of ours. Definitely, dude, and it's one of the, the angles I always approach with regards to like some of my interns I've had in the past, as well as studying strength conditioning theory and physiology. I've always said, hey, go away and study sales and some of the business side of things as well. And a lot of times I'll get that funny look back, like, well, why would I do that? So it's like, well, every interaction you've got is a sales uh, conversation with someone. Because a lot of times it's like, well, why am I going to do this versus what I've already been doing for the last 10 years or whatever it is. Yeah, so true. So true. But to pull it back on to the point here, Mark, obviously you are saying about, you know, going through the applied side and then making that move into academia. 
was it something just as you started getting involved in the research, you were just like, okay, this is something I can see my career path going for it? Or, you know, what was it that really sparked that interest to move away from fully, fully applied into a bit more of the academic setting? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, I think we can all identify maybe a mentor that we've had or some, you know, inspirational professional in, in our lives and stuff. And, and for me, without a doubt, it was Dr. Travis Triplett. Um, you know, she's a, a true pioneer in, in strength and conditioning. And, um, you know, she was my advisor in my master's degree program. And she truly inspired me um, to kind of pursue a, a career path in academia, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, it, it, there came a moment where I'm like, you know, I want your job. Um, not that exact one, but one like it and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And she was just a, a phenomenal mentor and continues to be, uh, you know, uh, a very special colleague and, and friend of mine uh, in, in, the, in the field. And so, um, you know, that, that sparked an interest, you know, when you realize you can kind of do research, you know, when, when you're in high school and, and, and you're kind of a jock like me, yeah, the grades might not have been great, you know, um, every school wasn't coming after me to, to give me an academic scholarship. Trust me, none of them were <laughs> at the time. But, you know, so what do you do, right? If, you love competition, you love being active, you love training, but what do you do with it? And again, things were a little bit different 30 years ago, John. Uh, and, and, um, but I, I found a passion that allows me to combine all these things that make me tick and to make a living off of it. <laughs> you know, and, and more importantly, you know, more importantly, um, to hopefully give back a little bit to these tactical operators and professionals. You know, if, if the work that we do over the course of a lifetime saves one life, in my mind, it has been more than worth it. And, um, you know, it's a lot of fun along the way too, working with, with, you know, operators as well as colleagues and, and the graduate students that we're training, you know, um, because I'm an army of one. I can't do anything by myself, but, but with those types of people, with those students and, and colleagues, that's where all of a sudden we multiply. Yeah. And, and that's what we're seeing in the field, you know, not to jump ahead uh, on us here, but, you know, that's how we can move the needle through research is spreading those tentacles. It's, it's an exponential multiplication of our efforts. And, and that's what we're seeing, I think, in the industry right now with the breadth and depth of research that's going on in tactical strength and conditioning, as well as on the health side of things, mm -hmm. technical pops and, and psychological outcomes and mental resiliency and, and PTSD and all those types of things. We're, we're just seeing so much movement there, but it's because we're picking up so much momentum the last 10, 15 years, but um, it, it, takes, it takes an army to, to begin to do that. Definitely, and as you say, you know, we're all just that individual person, but it's just like, how do you expand your scope of influence? And therefore, as you say, spreading out the, that, uh, those tentacles to other departments and stuff as well, to help move that needle along a bit more as well. And I think for your career path, as you said, Mark, you've come very much to that full circle of being a firefighter, progressing through the academic and now doing research within the firefighting community to help those guys have longer, safer careers as well. And obviously on the back end as well, so they can enjoy their life after they retire. Yeah, yeah, 
Exactly. You know, I mean, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about law enforcement and fire is, at least in the United States, you know, to set up with the pension system, et cetera, you, you work about 20, 25 years, and then you're set up for, you know, doing whatever you, it is that you want to do, but it, you're right, if you're not healthy at that point, and unfortunately, that's a huge problem, um, you know, it, it doesn't do you any good um, mm -hmm. if you can't enjoy you know, living in your 50s and beyond. I would love to be able to retire at that point or do whatever it is else that I would, you know, like to do and stuff. So yeah, that's part of our job, you know, help them uh, to be in position to, to enjoy that, that part of life. Definitely, definitely. And, and for someone who's been involved in the research for quite a period of time now, you know, how, how do you see the research having changed from the tactical field over the last decade? Um, you know, it, it really just, the field is in its infancy. And as much as we've grown the last 10, 15 years that, you know, 15 years that I've been really engaged in it, let me tell you, I mean, you could pick a topic and, and conduct a study on it 15 years ago because there was none. There was yeah. very little, very little research in the 90s um, and stuff. And, and, and now we just see this snowball effect because of the reasons I, I think that, that we had talked about, you know, that there's, there were some kind of primary researchers or players in the field, specifically in the tactical strength and conditioning, but also on the health side of it. But now I think we're just seeing kind of those, you know, that, that influence and that multiplication um, of, of graduates coming out, you know, that are in positions in higher education or academia, where part of their job is to do research. And so it facilitates, it provides a platform um, for us to conduct research on health, readiness, et cetera. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, what has changed, I, I don't know. I'm sure there have been tons of changes, but for me, it's kind of like the topics were kind of there 10, 15 years ago. It's just within each topic, there's a lifetime of research. Yeah. And one person, you know, it, you can't, only one person can only do so much. So with all these other individuals kind of getting in the game and, and getting jobs in, in academia and we see the research in private industry as well, that's what's changing things. That's what's changing. I don't know that, you know, of course there's some novel topics that are coming out as, you know, technology changes and provides us with new tools to use in the field. Yeah, that's changing um, things. But in terms of the general um, outcomes of research, health, safety, occupational readiness, that's been there. It's just, we weren't doing very much of it. And now I think if you look at the number of, of published, you know, papers and, and presentations at national conferences, et cetera, it's just this exponential, you know, growth. And so we're able to answer that, you know, research is like a puzzle mm -hmm. and, and you try to answer one question, but even when you try to answer that one question, you usually come up with five or six other questions in the process. And so even that one puzzle piece begins to almost take on a puzzle of itself that has smaller pieces. And then, you know, you understand this, this is, this is what research is. Yeah. You, know, you try to answer one thing and it leads to all more. And so that's where we're going. And so this is a huge picture in health, safety, readiness, pick a topic that we're all trying to fill in the pieces little by little and identify the gaps that are created by different projects that are going on, et cetera. So uh, that's really a roundabout response to your, uh, to your question, but uh, that's kind of my, you know, 30,000 foot perspective yeah. on how things have changed research-wise in the last 15 years. And mm -hmm. we're just able, we're, we're capable of doing more of it now to, to answer some of these questions, but 
more coming up. Nice. And obviously for, in terms of the research, as you say, like multiple areas now have got a lot of depth to them, whether it be the performance side, whether it be the, the wellness side of things, you know, just for regards to people within the tactical field. And obviously research will always lead to more questions that need more research into them as well. Who do you feel is pushing this more now? Is it very much coming from the academic standpoint for these questions or is industry starting to reach out more saying, hey, we have these questions with regards to our workforce. We want these answered using your help. Great question. Um, I think I think the, the answer is both of them. Like I said, from the research side, from the side that I understand a little bit better and I'm more familiar with because it, it's what I what I live, it's my life. Um, you know, there's people are put in positions where their job responsibilities are to conduct research, to submit grants, to publish papers. That's how they're evaluated. So that's always going to be part of the puzzle. We just have more people in those positions. So there's more research being done. And, you know, they enjoy doing research with tactical populations. So mm -hmm. that's moving the needle a little bit. That's, that's changing in the industry. But certainly to your point, there are departments, there are agencies, that are reaching out now um, to researchers, to practitioners, to, you know, to scientists to try to help solve problems or there's technology that's coming out that needs to be validated in private industry. And so you need researchers to do that, you know, independent, unbiased groups um, or, you know, to, to, to conduct that validation research. So um, I, I see a push from both sides. I, I see a greater push from the academic side, but again, that's what I live and I don't interact with every uh, part of the industry um, that probably is reaching out uh, out there. But a lot of times from my perspective and my experience, we'll reach out to a given department and say, you know, hey, we have this interest that I think could make you safer, healthier and, and uh, perform better. Are you interested in, mm -hmm. in collaborating? partnering and um, you know so it's it's been a lot of that but um, certainly in, there are fire departments that'll reach out and 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 I'll say hey we're interested in developing a physical ability uh, standard in our department you know can you help us and and so there's things that way that's interesting here Mark and from your perspective then like how are you and you know your department over there in Kentucky how are you guys managing to not only you know build but foster those relationships with departments as well so it's it goes from being like say a snapshot of research of like hey we want to help and set up a department standard on your fitness scores wherever it is to hey we want to work with you long term for the next 10-15 years for multiple questions you may have or you know to prolong your your workforce's um, durability and you know and um, that time on task yeah that's a great question, and there's not an easy solution to that. And yeah. it seems that every department that you are in touch with, you know, they have different interests, they have different resources in terms of supporting this and mm -hmm. and stuff. And so there certainly are some models across the United States that I'm a little bit more familiar with. At least I'm sure there are in, in Europe, etc. But um, you know, we've we've done some stuff locally for a few years um, with the department that, you know, again, our interest was, was research. Um, and so we were trying to evaluate longitudinal training interventions. You know, what, what's the, the most optimal periodization strategy for firefighters from a performance perspective, et cetera. And so we were working with them for a few years. And really the way that we were able to uh, 
facilitate that relationship was financially, I was able to get some state funding from, in this case, the Kentucky Fire Commission, which was phenomenal in supporting us for a few years in, in doing that. Um, but to be honest with you, the biggest part from a, with this university to department relationship was to get interns, volunteer students, et cetera, to be able to, to staff the, the training program and to implement it. Um, as well as the assessments pre and post, et cetera. But uh, without the students, you need additional financial resources, obviously, to be able to pay people. And that would be really nice to do. Um, but certain, you know, departments are going to have a bottom line. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's, that gets into a whole, you know, the discussion, another discussion about return on investment and demonstrating that, um, et cetera. But that's where we've had some success. And I know others, um, around the country, there's, there's a number of other uh, in universities that have partnered with their local departments and have been able to create that type of relationship, but um, it, it, it's a challenge for it to be sustainable, probably on both ends, ends of that, but, um, you know, financial support goes a long, a long way, and, and so having a, a department that is invested in under, and they prioritize that type of a program, wellness program, what have you, and they're willing to put some resources into it. I mean, that, that's the difference maker in, in, in the equation. I think there's a lot of universities or you know, in, people with tactical interests that would love to do that, but there just might not be that opportunity. It's gotta be a two-way relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's one of those things as well, like you mentioned there, Mark, it was, justifying to departments that return on investment because it's one thing we can have as like researchers or people like on the ground within the, the tactical space of either like strength edition and stuff like that but it's just like right we, we're coming from a positive place we really want to work you guys and we know what the good we can do but a lot of departments obviously money talks and you know if they're spending this money and that what, what are they getting back in return for that so i think a lot of people need to come in with almost that business hat on them once again just to be like right okay I know it can do good, but it's just justifying that as well to departments. Yep, absolutely, Ab absolutely. And, and, and then the other part of it too is, you know, you run into these situations where, and again, I'm not sure of, you know, other countries' structures of, of their administration within the departments, but, you know, you might have a, a fire chief who's essentially signing off on, on these types of, you know, collaborations or partnerships but, but then they leave in two, three years. And, you know, in the United States, we tend to have turnover at about that rate at, at the very top. Um, and, and so you had someone that was very supportive and now the next person comes in and they say, well, we, we, we should spend this money in other places. And so they have a different perspective on what they want to invest in and prioritize with those funds. And so, you know, that becomes part of this challenge as well as having some continuity or a culture within the department that is going to support this in the long run, not not just for until this person retires. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's you know another challenge that I've I've kind of experienced. Definitely, definitely, man. I mean, in those circumstances for you, Mark, who are you looking to approach at that point? Then, like you say, if fire chiefs moving on every couple of years. Are you trying to approach like wellness committees or unions within that to try and spark that longer term relationship there? Yeah, those are great, great suggestions. Mm -hmm. Union involvement is, is always going to be critical. Sometimes, uh, as maybe you've experienced, they're very supportive. 
uh, and other times they're they're in opposition to these things, um, which is very interesting and a whole other topic of discussion. But um, yeah, the wellness committee, you know, uh, I think is health and wellness committees are a great way to approach this and stuff. Um, at least you hope that there's a little bit more stability in that, you know, moving moving forward. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, one thing I want to dive into, Mark, so obviously you've built these relationships, you've been conducting your research within different departments as well. So just to dive into some of the research I've seen you put out there as well, disregarding the firefighters and just trying to quantify performance factors for them as well. One of them was just around, you know, aerobic fitness and their, their performance and fireground tasks as well. Can you just give us a little bit of a background on that study and just, you know, what, what key information you've taken from that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of surveyed firefighters in terms of their perception of their physical fitness levels from strength to aerobic endurance, et cetera, as well as their perception of their occupational performance, right? And sometimes perceptions don't line up with reality. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of one of the things that, that we evaluated in that study. But we wanted to really see if, you know, if, if their perceptions of their fitness um, lined up with parallel their physical fitness levels. Um, and in fact, they did but they didn't really line up with um, occupational performance. Mm -hmm. So the kind of take home point of that is, you know, if your perception of your fitness is on track, which they were, um, and they're willing to acknowledge that, especially when they tend to be less fit, um, that can be used, um, you know, again, kind of part of the psychological elements that we were talking about in implementing programs. Um, but you know, you can use that to try to enhance their engagement in physical activity, uh, but you have to have, you know, the right pieces in place. There's a lot of limitations to or barriers to being more active within a fire department. We need to turn those into facilitators, mm -hmm. you know, providing time on duty. Um, you know, the National Fire Protection Association recommends an hour of health and wellness time, you know, on, on duty each day, but how often is that really implemented? The data suggests that it's very limited. It's like one quarter of the departments actually, you know, engage in that or, or follow through on that recommendation. And so, you know, that that's a problem. But there's got to be opportunities, facilitators um, for it. But that was kind of the take home, you know, from from that study is people are, you know, people are aware of their physical fitness. But if you can get them to be honest with themselves and then provide opportunities to engage in activity, then you can kind of move the needle on improvements in not only fitness. We know aerobic fitness, for instance, is, is related to occupational performance for firefighters. Well, then we can get them to be more active and train, uh, perform endurance exercise. Hopefully performance is going to follow suit and, and improve mm -hmm. as, as well. That's interesting. And obviously with the guys, you know, we're saying there's, there's a wide age range within the firefighting community as well. And the guys who are quite new out of the academy versus guys who've been in it for their full careers, you know, that, that knowledge and that, their perception of their fitness levels was that uniform across all, all our participants, like, you know, from the very young to the very old, it was a case of, you know, some of the older guys who got that more of that um, on job training and awareness of what the job demands, you know, is that a bit closer for them to that awareness? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I'm not sure that we, that we had published that a, a, a couple of years ago. I'm not sure that we correlated age to that. That's interesting that you say that because you do tend to see that, that dynamic of, mm -hmm. you know, as firefighters age, um, A, they try to, they become more efficient at performing tasks. They kind of know ways to, different techniques to pull hose, et cetera, or to drag a, a victim. 
um, that might be a little bit mechanically more efficient versus just brute force and you know uh, higher amounts of physical exertion and stuff. Um, so I, I think that age probably does play into that uh, a little bit, but um, you know, I, in, in my mind, you know, per, perception is 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 interesting. It's an interesting thing to look at, but we just need to engage the entire incumbent population in in exercise on a regular basis. And and sometimes it's not force feeding them. What Mark Abel says is the optimal program for mm -hmm. occupational readiness. It's you know what, let's do something, a mode of training that you enjoy. Yeah. Because guess what? All biomotor abilities essentially are important for firefighters' occupational performance. So if you like to run, then let's do some running stuff and we'll start to squeeze a little bit of circuit work in there, which by the way, can be good for your running performance as well. If we can increase your strength and, and your muscle endurance a little bit, bit that way, right? And so you can kind of work things in that way. But again, this comes back to me to compliance. And if we want them to do something, force feeding them what I say is the optimal program, yeah, probably not the best idea if you, if you want enhanced compliance. <laughs> but engage them in things that they enjoy. And then along the way, you kind of work in some of these other mod training modalities uh, that could help what they're really passionate about. That's an interesting one, dude. And like you say, it's, that that what's the lowest hanging fruit for people to get involved in it you know and then you can start to change those behaviors of drip feed like your own stuff into that as well um obviously we're saying about age within the firefighting community as well there do, what do we typically see for guys as they go through their career as you say they've become more efficient you know being able to do tasks in a more efficient manner as well but do we see any sort of performance decrease within that and what what should guys be aware of as well just to be you know like either address their training needs like right i need to focus a bit more in this area or you know what i know my scores i'm going to be at this level once i hit my 20th or my 30th year you know in in the service yeah yeah that's a great question um yeah so we, we've conducted a little bit of research you know on the influence of age specifically we were we were looking at high-end elite in terms of elite fitness uh, firefighters that were participating in the firefighter combat challenge, which now is a worldwide fitness competition for firefighters you're probably aware of. Um, shameless plug to Dr. Paul Davis for, for doing this for, I don't know, probably 30, 30 years and stuff. Um, certainly a leader in, in the industry there, but we were able to partner up with, with him and, and essentially compare older firefighters versus younger. And I say older, younger, we stratified them based on 37 years of age. So you can read into that what you want, um, but it was like the median value um, and stuff. So, and, and, and sure enough, the younger firefighters in that elite level competition were significantly faster on a occupational, you know, obstacle course and the combat challenge and stuff. Um, and, and, and interestingly, we looked at, we tried to, we surveyed the, the competitors, and this was at a national, uh, at the uh, World Championships in Louisville, Kentucky a few years ago. And, um, you know, we surveyed them and asked them, you know, we tried to, to drill down to their training parameters and training load and frequency, et cetera, to try to compare between the two the older and younger cohorts participating in the combat challenge. And there was no difference um, between the two groups in, in how, how much they were training, their training load, training stress, et cetera, which is kind of interesting. But within that, there was a lot of variability even within each of those groups, as you might suspect, people train different ways. Yeah. And you can train different ways and still 
be pretty darn good at whatever the outcome is in, in this case. And so you get a lot of variability in some of those training parameters. Well, that makes it hard to find differences statistically um, as well. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. But that said, you know, we didn't find any group mean differences between the groups suggesting that their training levels were approximately the same, yet the older firefighters were a little bit slower in, in completing the occupational tasks. Now, I will tell you to a person out of the older firefighters in this world championship competition, I would have any one of them save me if I were in a burning uh, building. They, they can more, more than, than capable of doing the job very well. And so these firefighters in, in this study, it was, it was an interesting study, but I mean, these are the, you know, these are the 95th percentile in terms of you know, fitness for firefighters in the, probably in the world. Yeah. So it's a it's a biased sample, but interestingly, that we did find differences in performance. So it does suggest to you that even among the most fit older firefighters, there's gonna be some decrements in occupational performance over time. Yeah. That's nothing new. We look at any literature on aerobic fitness levels or strength levels of the general population, you know, by decade, cross-sectional data, of course, but um you know, there's going to be a decline in VO2 max and absolute strength and in power. But the good news is, is that training might not make up for the entire decrement over time, but it'll certainly do enough to keep you in, in that kind of safe range in terms of occupational performance. And so even though we get older, we're still human and the human body is phenomenal at adapting to stress, the appropriate type of stress. Definitely. And that's interesting here as well, Mark, um, you know, seeing that across, you know, multiple like organizations or professions as well of that decrement that will come with age, but it's just like, you know, how severe is that? And then just departments as well, just being aware of that for if they're imposing fitness standards and being aware of those sort of figures. So they are realistic as well, what they're trying to set for the, their population groups as well, I think is huge. Um, but like you say, still, guys are still going to be efficient within their their work and it's still they're able to conduct their um their job tasks it's just like the underlying aspects to that as well and how they prep for it is the interesting thing to see yeah absolutely and again you know we talk about these things like we want to optimize you know everything and, and turn these these firefighters or law enforcement officers into just machines mm -hmm. you know to be elite level athletes and we call them tactical athletes but you know uh, in my opinion you know what, some of them are not going to be technical athletes, but can we get them all to a point where they can safely do their job and come home at night? Yeah. You know, to, to, to me, that's what it's really about. It's, it's not, you know, turning them all into machines. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that's great. But it's, it comes down to safety, you mm -hmm. know, and, and they don't have to be elite level athletes to be able to do their job safely. But if you're not doing stuff over time, you, you're going to be a detriment probably to yourself and to your department and your colleagues. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's just um, looking as well, like you say, there's like, not everyone's going to be elite level tactical athlete competing in the combat challenge and stuff like that. But it's just like, you know, how do you prepare and what's what fits with you as well as your individual scenario. So like we said, there's a wide range of guys in the fire service. So there's the 20 year old, you know, academy graduate who's got a lot more free time versus the 45 year old who's got a family of three, you know, and it's just like, right, how's your time spent? 
can you really spend every night in the gym and stuff like that or have you got you know recitals and stuff to go to so it's yeah it's just that thing right right but, but if you do have an hour on duty like that's all that you should need two three mm -hmm. days a week right i mean I'm, hey i'm excited to work out two days a week if i could you know do that and um and that that's about all it takes you know john it really does but got to do it and you got to support it as a department definitely definitely dude and you're saying obviously we see a, a decrement with age as well um, one of the big things within the, the tactical community, obviously, is PPE just protecting themselves for their job task. And, you know, firefighters carry some of, the, some of the biggest loads outside of the military side of things, you know, and we know as soon as you throw a load on someone, we're going to see that, that, that performance decrement down. What's, what sort of numbers are we looking at here within the firefighting community? You know, as soon as you throw on, you know, the PPE suits, rebreathers, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from, from the data that we've collected and, and published on that, now this was in firefighter recruits, okay, but um, we've noticed that if we put them through a simulated fire ground test, um, you compare their PT closed condition, kind of a baseline condition, and then you load them up and not even breathing through the respirator, 50 pounds of gear, you're looking at about a 40% increase in the time of completion of occupational tasks just due to the mass of the gear. Then you add the respirator on and you're looking at about another 5% increase in um, time of, of completion so it's you're you know 45 percent increase in time of completion on tasks now they they were all able to complete it but these were also relatively young 20 something year old recruits and stuff you know we apply this situation to you know the 50 some year old firefighter that has not been able to maintain adequate physical fitness and and that decrement is probably dramatically higher mm -hmm. You know, so it, it becomes, you know, really important for us to try to identify from a programming standpoint and getting practitioners, you know, in, involved and engaged in, in this discussion is, you know, identifying biomotor abilities that are related to the increased demands of the PPE. And, um, you know, that's, that's a topic that we still are trying to, to hone in on um, a, a little bit, but um, that helps to direct our, our, our training. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. If you, if you look at well, what biomotor abilities are related to just performance in gear, like I said, it's pretty much across the board from aerobic fitness to strength and power and just about everything in between because the nature of some tasks are much more aerobic in nature, some are more anaerobic and some are explosive, et cetera. So all three energy systems are, are being utilized, which creates a lot of challenges from a programming perspective to optimize multiple energy systems over time without overtraining a firefighter and stuff. But uh, it's interesting that what we've also kind of noticed is, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of academies or fire departments, maybe an annual fitness testing as well as in their academies or using as screening tools. They, a lot of times we use body weight dependent assessments, pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, et cetera. And, those in our experience don't seem to correlate very highly to performance mm -hmm. in gear. Yeah. You know, because, you know, who's going to excel on pull-ups, push-ups, and sit-ups, a lighter weight individual, right? But then you put them in 50 pounds of gear, and now all of a sudden that 50 pounds, or how many stones is that, John? I, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> But, but all of a sudden that tactical, the load, the tactical load is a greater relative percentage of their body mass because they're lightweight. And so they don't perform as better. 
Um, and, and so that's a problem that we've also seen is how we're assessing, again, through the hiring process, use it in the academy to assess, you know, entrance and exit exams and or, and or fitness testing for incumbent populations. We, I think we got to really take a careful look at how we're assessing uh, these individuals. And again, in our experience, the body mass dependent exercises don't seem to be as highly related as some loaded assessments. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably something that, you know, we kind of need to evaluate, you know, some probably better methodologies and, and they got to be cost effective and feasible to implement and easy to do and all of those things. But I think there's probably some things that, that could be done there that would serve mm -hmm. as better assessments of occupational performance when in gear. Yeah. And that's an interesting point like you mentioned there, Mark, a lot more of the testing is calisthenics sort of based for endurance or repetition based uh, work. I know the British Army here uh, in the UK has changed a lot of their testing data. And one of those elements I would like to see across more tactical field would be the isometric mid thigh pull, just for, you know, total force production, how much force can that individual produce? And as you say, like, cost and wise, maybe it's a bit more upfront for actual kit and stuff like that. But in terms of logistics, it's pretty quick and easy to go through a large cohort of people to test that very quickly and be like, right, okay, then can we start seeing like, right, is there a baseline where we see like, you know, in order to reduce that decrement of, you know, having your PP on, because we know that it's going to happen, but it's just like, how much can we reduce that decrement? So it's like, if you've got this baseline, we know that's where you can go from from there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting you say that and maybe even express that, you know, mid thigh, mid thigh full strength relative to mass in gear. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's even more relevant, you know, and kind of looking at an index there of, you know, is there kind of a minimal threshold of relative strength in gear? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wonder how that would play out. But yeah, that, I love that suggestion. Um, I, I sense, a, sense an interest in research study coming here, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean you know you talk long enough and these things just you know kind of come off off the wall so that's awesome mark that's awesome but also talking about research and the stuff you're doing over at uh kentucky i know you've got set up there the the first responders research laboratory um you know how long has this been set up and what was that process like in the off the ground it, it's funny you ask it happened last summer and so yeah. this is brand new i look i was the director for eight or 10 years of our exercise physiology lab at the University of Kentucky. Um, and I uh, switched positions from that, transitioned to the, the, the director of the first responder research lab. So this is brand new, um, to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's something that I'm very excited about. It, it's, um, you know, it, it helps us in terms of recruiting students. It helps kind of, you know, when you're disseminating the work that you're doing, people can identify where it's coming from, which lab it's coming from, who's doing the work, et cetera. And so we're, we're doing some work right now to kind of, you know, get the word out on this a little bit, getting our website up. So I wish I could direct you to that website, um, but we'll, we'll certainly, uh, you know, hit you up on LinkedIn or something at, at, at some point. And, uh, but yeah, no, this is, it's been a breath of fresh air. It's been real exciting for me. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, it hasn't taken a lot in terms of the university's support. They've been very supportive. My department's been very supportive of it. And um, so we're, we're excited in terms of, you know, where we're going uh, with it. Nice, man. Nice. And obviously you say it's only been up and running for about a year. You've managed to get this going. What sort of projects are you currently looking at with regards to the department? 
Yeah, a couple of things. Well, you know, COVID didn't do, hasn't done anybody any favors yeah. uh, in terms of research. And that, that really kind of put a halt on things that we were doing for about, you know, the last year, year and a half, unfortunately, um, and, and stuff. But yeah, we've been, number of projects, man. We've, um, I'll give you a little bit historically kind of what we've been doing and kind of where we are, where we're going. You know, we've done a lot of work, not only kind of on the load carriage stuff that you've mentioned, and we've looked at load carriage and SWAT operators and the decrement in performance and the effect on marksmanship uh, as well. Uh, I'll just point out there's no difference in marksmanship, fortunately, in gear and out of gear where that really would have probably threw the world in a tizzy. Um, That's interesting, but, sorry, Mark, I'll dive on that. So with regards to marksmanship yeah. there, what were you looking at with load? Were you, um, was it just SWAT vest operation with regards to that? And, you know, with regards to marksmanship, was it, was a pistol, was a rifle? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was PT clothes run through an obstacle course um, with, uh, we had about four shooting stations. Uh, three of those were with an AR, one was with a pistol, um, you know, just quantified marksmanship based on distance from kind of center of mass, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, dragging victims, breaching a door, etc. So we timed them, heart rate, uh, blood lactate. So we got physiological parameters, perceived effort, etc. So they slowed down by about eight or nine percent when they put on their full tactical kit. Uh, these were SWAT operators, um, and um, but the marksmanship was identical in gear versus out of gear. So although you know there was. <laughs> Um, additional, it took them longer to complete and the exertion level was a little bit higher. I, I really think, you know, we kind of uh, um, hypothesized that the slower time, yeah, it was more physically demanding because of the gear, but it, I think it's also they tend to, the operators tended to take a little bit more time going into each marksmanship position, each shooting position, uh, so that they could kind of calm themselves down, get their heart rate down a little bit, and then accurately fire. And so I think that had as much to do with it as the physical demand did. You know, they, they know their level of comfort when they're going to take a shot and where they need to be physiologically. And so I think they just brought, brought themselves down. It took a little bit more time. But in the end, their performance was, was similar. Okay. okay. So, um, and, and interestingly there, what we found was is that aerobic capacity and fatigue index on a 30-second all-out Wingate test, so the amount of fatigability, those two factors correlated to that change in performance. So again, we talk about identifying biomotor abilities that can help us train for the demands of the year in a realistic situation. That's a great example of how we were able to kind of identify some of those biomotor abilities that we should be targeting on to help them so it's easier when they're in their gear. You know, and, and I think those two things, aerobic capacity, you know, like, well, SWAT operators, you know, but again, we had them performing multiple tasks in succession, and it mm -hmm. took about three minutes to complete. So those that were more aerobically fit had lower decrements in performance. And those that didn't fatigue as much on a 30-second all-out, you know, wind gate test in terms of power output didn't have as much of a decrement in occupational uh, performance or completion time. So I think when we think about those scenarios where there's the potential for multiple tasks to be sequenced, um, you know, uh, one after another with minimal recovery, those biomotor abilities play in. Yeah. Um, so. That's interesting. That's interesting. Your mark on that as well. Thanks for clarifying that, dude. Um, sorry, I know I jumped on when you were just explaining through some of the projects you had ongoing, dude. 
Yes, no, I, I, I love it. So that's the problem when you get a researcher on here, you start talking about their their uh, their work and you're not gonna get them to shut up. So I, I love talking about that stuff, John. But yeah, I mean, so historically, I mean, in brief, we've, we've done a, a note, we've conducted a number of studies looking at, um, you know, how should we be training on duty and off duty for firefighters? This comes back to my earlier work where we were training this department for a couple of years and inevitably, you know, we put them through a circuit workout and, you know, they were pretty fatigued and the tone would go off. They'd have to run off to a structure fire or some type of emergency. And so the, it became apparent at that point that I'm like, are they able to do their job? Like, what if they're too fatigued and we're putting them in, in, in harm's way because they're fatigued, right? Like, let's yeah. not be, look, I'm promoting uh, exercise on duty, but let's not be, you know, ignorant to the potential negative effects of this. And so that was one of the first studies we did was we looked at the impact of performing circuit training on duty. And we had them run through a simulated fire ground test as a baseline in full gear. Okay. And then another day brought them in, put them through a standardized circuit training workout. 10 minutes after the completion of the workout, they were in gear and they ran through the same simulated fire ground test. We looked at physiological parameters, but you know, more importantly right now, uh, was the time of completion. Well, they got significantly slower. It took them 10% more time to complete it post-workout, but all of the firefighters were still able to complete occupational tasks, okay? And this was a group of, as I remember, about 12 firefighters that were moderately trained because we've been working with them for about three or four months up until that point. So they had some baseline fitness, okay? But I said, the last thing we wanna do is say, here, look, yep, you get slower uh, on your job after you exercise on duty. And I, my, the wrong people are going to take that the wrong way and say, this is exactly why we're not going to allow our incumbents to train on duty. So to put that in perspective, John, what we did is we took another group of 30, 35 or 36 firefighters that were not training regularly with us, mm -hmm. got them to run through the simulated fire ground test and timed them just one time. Well, six out of the 35 could not complete the simulated fire ground test. And in the remaining 29 or so that were sedentary, but completed it, and we got their times, we compared the fit but fatigued group post-exercise, their time to the sedentary, but not fatigued group, because they didn't work out, right? It turns out that the fit but, the fit but fatigued group, their average time was still faster than 70% of the wow. sedentary, but fresh firefighters. So this excuse of, I'm not going to work out on duty in case we get a call. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably going to, probably going to stink a little bit. If you get it, you know, you're going to be a little fatigued, but if you exercise on duty regularly, you'll acclimate adaptations will allow you to perform the job, even if you have some residual fatigue. Mm -hmm. And, and John, we've done that in with not only circuit training, but I've done it in heavy resistance training in endurance exercise on duty. Um, and we most recently just completed a study on high intensity resistance training, more of a CrossFit-esque type of a workout on, on duty. Um, and, and, and basically all of those demonstrated that, you know, the firefighters can still complete the tasks, but they do get significantly slower by about a magnitude of about 10%, a little bit less in the endurance, uh, in the endurance study. But does that mean like, we should only be doing endurance exercise on duty? Not in my book. Um, no, because that's not the only thing that's important again. Um, so resistance training is, and I'll just throw this at you too. In the heavy resistance training study, one of my thoughts there was like, we've all lifted heavy one day 
and maybe that's off duty, mm-hmm. but now maybe a day or two later when you're really sore from lifting heavy, you're on duty and you still do your job even though you're having a hard time rolling out of bed, right? Um, and the long and the short of it, John, was that 24, 24 hours and 48 hours post heavy resistance training, the group was back down to baseline. So somewhere between 10 minutes and 24 hours, these groups are getting back down to baseline. Um, and, and so some of our follow-up research is trying to identify the time course of recovery. Is it, is it one hour later? Um, and in, in fact, in the high intensity resistance training study, we did look at it one hour later. Um, the results will be coming out in publication real soon. So stay tuned. I'm going to leave, leave everyone hanging a little bit on, on that one. Um, but, you know, so that's, that's something that I've been very interested in is trying to identify what's, what are appropriate ways to train on duty and what are inappropriate ways and, and what are ways that we can, you know, recommend for practitioners and, and, you know, incumbents that are just exercising on their own to do this safely. And I think this stuff comes down to common sense, John. It's kind of like, you know what? Don't do something that's entirely novel on duty. Don't just, the guy that's doing CrossFit, um, don't jump into that, even though that person's been doing it for three years, because it's not going to be a, a, a favorable outcome you know, afterwards. And you're probably going to have a hard time doing your job. And you're probably at an increased risk of injury because of that level of residual fatigue. Uh, but those that are doing it regularly, you know, they're, they're okay as long as you're smart about it. Also look at, you know, when you get the most calls, train on low volume call times. Maybe that's just prior to the end of a shift when you're less likely to get them. Yeah. Um, you know, fire, the risk of fire generally goes up when people start cooking when they get home, you know, after work and stuff. So try to, you know, try to beat that a little bit. But I think common sense and just being smart about what you do and uh, how much the volume of loading that you're doing and practitioners that are working directly with firefighters or law enforcement officers that might be in the same type of situation here of, of training right before duty. A lot of them will do that. Um, as a practitioner, understand how, how individuals are adapting to the stresses that you're applying, right? Did this crush this guy, but this guy was totally fine. Everyone's going to respond differently. And in fact, I'll tell you, you know, the data in all these studies, you know, we look at these group averages and did they get back to baseline as a group? But if you look at individual data points and responses in the heavy resistance training study, even 24 hours later, there was about three or four firefighters that were still about 5% slower or more. So on average, yeah, they were like back down to 2% within their baseline, but there's still some that were affected by it. I tried to, I tried to survey their soreness levels and, and correlate that and their fitness levels and correlate that. John, it's a, it's a crapshoot, man. There's so many factors, oh, yeah. as you know, that influence adaptation and recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, that's, you know, hopefully the technology you say, well, what's changed in the industry and technology that's coming out. I think that certainly has a place for it. Um, you know, other things that we've done, and this ties into technology, you know, we've used a mega wave and heart rate variability. Um, and assessing firefighters. And interestingly, John, we, we found a significant relationship between heart rate variability and occupational physical ability. Okay. Uh, more sympathetically dominant individuals in the morning had um, an increased performance or increased completion time on an occupational physical ability test. So don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't want everyone to go out and be like, we're doing HRV and we're gonna tell someone if they're on light duty, based on their HRV that day. 
No, yeah. that, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not where we're at. But as we're doing with athletes, right? Athlete monitoring and, and state of physiological readiness to perform and to adapt to stress. We need to collect a lot more data uh, on these types of things, but it's interesting. You know, physiological states of readiness, at least we found that there was a relationship with ability to perform that, that day. But for me, I think physiological states of readiness is more about ability to adapt to a stress than hit numbers. At least I think we see that in, in athletes. You know, they might be able to hit their numbers even if their vertical jump is a little bit low, their neuromuscular status is a little low, or DC, you know, brainwave potential is, is a suboptimal, whatever the measure you're using is, they might hit their numbers, but at what cost? Yeah. Definitely. You know, and, and to me, that that's probably the, the bigger thing there and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I digress. We've done some of that stuff, right, on training on duty and, and a little bit of, of kind of the, the operator monitoring, the athlete monitoring and how it's related to uh, performance. But, you know, kind of where we're going now, John, is um, very interested in, in redefining occupational readiness or more accurately quantifying occupational readiness in firefighters, uh, specifically through their work efficiency. And um, we, we published uh, a paper a couple of months ago that we're, we're doing some follow-up work on, uh, on now um, in terms of work efficiency. And they were really just trying to quantify not only firefighters work rate, how quickly they can perform tasks, but at what cost in terms of air consumption. And, you know, I, as a researcher, for the last 16 years, I've been defining readiness or performance in firefighters as time completion, right? But guess what? A lot of times you're on air as a firefighter when you're completing these tasks. And my guess is some firefighters are more efficient than others in consuming, you know, in consuming compressed air. Um, you know, it's uh, what we kind of expect to see, but, um, you know, we'll see where that goes. But, you know, data in the general population, you put a group of people on a treadmill at mm -hmm. the same speed and grade, you standardize work rate, there's as much as a 20 to 30 percent difference in minute ventilation between those individuals based on their stature, based on their aerobic capacity, uh, et, et cetera. So I suspect we're gonna see some of the same trends in firefighters while they're performing occupational tasks, not on a treadmill. Let's apply this to the real world. And that's really what my interests are is I love being in the lab, John, but for me, it's all about application and, um, you know, uh, internal validity, very strong in the lab, Yeah. but you lose some of the generalizability and the external validity, the real world application. And that's what you get in, you know, you get out in the training center and, and that's why I love to do things, but, you know, it's also a little bit harder to control for all these confounding factors and weather, et cetera, and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, more to come on work efficiency. I'm very excited about, you know, some up and coming projects for our lab um, on, on that topic. Again, in an effort to make firefighters safer, make them more mm -hmm. efficient. Uh, you know, if we can save a couple minutes of air on a cylinder through improved, through targeted, improving targeted biomotor abilities that are related to work efficiency, now I think we're, we're doing something. We're also gearing up for a series of studies this, this year on uh, injuries in firefighters and really trying to drill down, John, on what the mechanisms of injury are on the fire ground, but also during PT, Yeah. right? I mean, about a third of the injuries total come from physical training that are incurred by firefighters. 
Oh, boy, that, that gives people like you and me a black eye, man. Well, it gives you business. Uh, <laughs> it gives you business, but it gives, you know, me and practitioners a black eye. Yeah. We're supposed to be doing them some good and preventing injuries through our programming. But first of all, we got to understand why they're occurring. And so we're going to be kind of taking two different approaches from uh, actually interviewing healthcare practitioners on their perspective on why firefighters that they treat are getting injured, yeah. right? Because sometimes, let's let's be honest, you know, a firefighter gets hurt in the, in the weight room trying to deadlift or pick a piece of equipment up on the fire ground with very poor technique. But do they realize their technique is poor? Maybe not, but a physical therapist watching them bend over can tell that right away. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the big um, things we've had, like during my time as a strength coach, it was just like the cardinal sin was to have an athlete injured within the gym because you just knew the, the, the hammer would come down hard on that because it's one thing for them to get injured out on the field of play. And, you know, there's a lot of things you can't control within that, uh, that environment. But within the gym, we can control a lot more of those variables. So if someone's getting injured, you've got to take a really good hard look at yourself and be like, right, what have I done with regards to my program or preparing that athlete for that session? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and this, this problem, you know, trying to dig into this is, you know, there's a reason there's not a ton of data on it. You know, if you just look at NFPA, you know, injury data, it's, well, here's the general cause, here's the general type. There's nothing specific to mechanisms. It's overexertion strain and, you know, a body part. Mm -hmm. and, and beyond that, you're like, well, but, but how? And, and there's some people doing some great work in the field. David, Dr. David Frost is doing phenomenal work with this um, and, and stuff, but you know, that's the, the reality is, is this is multifactorial. There's intrapersonal, interpersonal. So within the person factors that influence their injuries, it's between, it's the dynamics between firefighters and motivation, being a hero when you're training with your buddies. Um, you know, there's probably some of that in training, you know, trying to get a couple of extra reps in a fatigued state um, that you should have just shut it down. And then I think there's institutional factors. It's the department itself. Are they supervising? Are they providing appropriate equipment are they providing educational resources right so this is a complex multifactorial issue and and stuff but hopefully we can um, get a little bit more information on on that and that's kind of where we're hoping to go uh in in the future that's awesome mark and i mean a lot of great projects come through there and a lot of interesting uh points you guys can be looking at in regards to you know the ability to train on duty versus off use of tech as well and how that's going to implement readiness and that as well so i think all all really interesting things to come down down the pipeline there as well mate and i know you've already got some great research out there guys can tap into so that's helping you know performance practitioners across the globe improve their service and their delivery as well my question for you though mark is you know what what are you engaging in? i always ask everyone who's on the podcast the same thing but it's just like what are you engaged in for your own education and your own development? So on that, mate, can you give us a book, an app, or website recommendation you personally find useful? Yeah, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great question. And there are so many great resources out there. Um, for me, I, I do rely a lot on scientific literature um, you know, to, to do this. And, and frankly, going to conferences, because you know, the stuff that comes out of the literature is, has been done a year or two before that, typically, in, in terms of when it's when it's published, but you know, so seeing what people are doing in terms of posters and podiums, presentations at, at conferences, and, and frankly, just networking and talking with them is 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 phenomenal. And, and there's a number of 
you know, obviously ways to do that uh, through LinkedIn, et cetera, and stuff. Um, you know, I think there's some classic for the stuff I'm really interested in, in terms of um, kind of uh, physical ability standards and assessments. Hard work is a great resource by Brian Sharkey and, and Paul Davis. Um, you know, in, in a lot of this stuff in terms of my programming for periodization, again, you can get a lot firsthand from directly talking with, with folks um, that are strength and conditioning practitioners, but Bamba and Hoff's periodization tech, uh, periodization textbook, um, I, I, I have found phenomenal in terms of uh, applying different strategies to tactical populations. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm, I'm a fan of, um, of Vladimir Isram's work on, um, uh, block periodization, you know, really designed for Olympic athletes. But when I boil it down to optimal strategies, what are optimal strategies to train you know, firefighters or law enforcement officers. It's like, how do we optimize multiple biomotor abilities throughout the year without overtraining? Well, I think we can kind of, I, <laughs> I'm not very bright, John. I like to copy things that other people are, are doing and, and apply them. And when we looked at, when, when you look at Olympic athletes that have co a competition schedule that's sporadic throughout an annual cycle, it's not, here's your competition period and here's your off season, like a team sport athlete, but Olympic yeah. athletes, have this sporadic schedule. And so I think block periodization kind of ticks all the boxes, especially for moderate to advanced trained individuals. Not necessarily appropriate for beginners. I'd probably do some linear periodization. But anyways, Vladimir Isram's work on block periodization, um, I frankly uh, think is, is one potential um, training strategy that could be very, very effective. Yeah, I 100% agree. And then I know comparing the two, it's like apples and oranges, isn't it, between athletics and uh, tactical sort of personnel, just with the, the high variability within the, the yearly cycle for these guys, rather than have a structured off-season and uh, on-season period. I, I agree with you, I quite like Azirin's uh, block periodization. I think for the tactical community as well, maybe something around like a conjugate uh, method as well makes sense as well, just because of the nature of their work. But like you say, it's more of a thing of, are they ready for it? Have they got the training background in order to jump into more of an advanced periodization schedule? Yeah, ab absolutely. It's got to be individualized at the end of the day, which introduces another challenge in our programming, you know, for especially when we're dealing with groups of firefighters or law enforcement officers. Definitely. But I mean, some great, great resources there, Mark. I'll make sure I throw them in our show notes, dude. For anyone who's listening into this, you know, I think you've dropped some great points here. Anyone who's listening, you know, would take a lot of great value from this episode, Mark. What's the best way they can get in touch with you if they want to ask any further questions regarding your work? Sure, yeah, they can uh, hit me up on, on LinkedIn, uh, certainly. They can uh, email me at, at mark.able at uky.edu. That's M-A-R-K.A-D-E-L at uky.edu. Um, I'm sure you can drop that in the, in, uh, the notes section yep. um, if you don't mind. And, uh, but yeah, and you can check us out, you know, at University of Kentucky, just, just Google, um, you know, uh, Department of Kinesiology and Health Promotion or Google my name and University of Kentucky and you'll pull us up, so. Awesome, that's fine, Mark. I'll make sure I drop them in as well, along with your recommendations on resources, dude. You know, Mark, thank you once again. I know it took us a little bit of time just to get schedules to match up and that, but it's, it's been very worthwhile for the wait, dude. So really, really appreciate your time, Mark. You're, you're most welcome, John. It's been my pleasure. Again, you know, give, give someone a chance to talk about their work a little bit and uh, <laughs> they'll take that opportunity anytime. So it, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
I appreciate that, Mark. Okay, take care, buddy. Sounds good. You too. Now, guys, before you jump off, I just wanted to bring your attention quickly to a really great cause that's been run by two of our former guests in Annette Zapp and Chris Morella. We're halfway through November here, and we're about to jump into December. The last three years, Chris and Annette have been running Devote December. So this is an entire month dedicated to shining a spotlight on uh, firefighter and EMS suicide and just the the challenge you guys face within these within these career fields with regards to what they're seeing on a daily basis and some of the darkness that can creep in there as well. If you can, make sure you follow these guys uh, Devote December on Instagram and Facebook. Every day there will be a highlight and, you know, um, some of the workout ideas they've got and incorporating some of the numbers into that as well, just to highlight and show that these guys are remembered. And if you yourself are struggling, you know, make sure you reach out to guys in your department. You're not alone in this or anyone else out there as well, just to support you through as well. For, it can be potentially a very dark time for you guys as well. You know, mental health, it's got a lot of press nowadays and we're starting to break the stigma of it, especially for guys within the first responder community. Make sure you guys get behind each other and also back up Annette and Chris with what they're doing with regards to Devote December, okay? Take care. Hi guys, really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support in us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.